The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 16. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. The word of God. For the people of God. All right, well, John 15. My name is Bob. I uh, get the privilege of preaching the scriptures here. Really glad to be here with you. Um, if you are newer around here, you will quickly learn that uh, this church community is full of stories. Uh, like any family, we've got our own stories to tell. Uh, many of the best stories are from the early, early years of Coram Deo, a decade and a half ago when I and all of us were younger and also more foolish. Uh, in those days, my dear friend Will Walker worked alongside me as one of the pastors here at Quorum Day. Here's a picture of Will and I from back in those days. Uh, Will is now the lead pastor of Providence Church in Austin, Texas, which uh, is a church we planted back in 2010. Uh, Will loves to make bets. And if Will and I ever disagreed on anything, chances are we'd make a bet on who was right and then someone would win and someone would lose. And that meant it always cost you something to be wrong, which is actually a really good way to learn which battles you actually are willing to fight. Um, but if you're gonna settle a disagreement or a debate, of course, you need a source that's a reliable arbiter. And back in those days, back before the smartphone, there was one source we agreed upon to settle all disputes over factual information, and that source was Auburn Info. Uh, Auburn Info 
was an information desk in the student union at Auburn University. Uh, it had started out as just like a university information desk, but the students who worked there prided themselves, this was in the early days of Google, and they prided themselves on being able to quickly find access to any information you might want to know. And so um, whenever, whatever you might want to know about anything, the students at Auburn Info could find. And so whenever Will and I had a debate, Auburn Info was the resolution. Uh, one time, we were driving somewhere, I don't remember where, and I don't remember who was with us, but we got into a debate about how many hippopotamus-related deaths there are in a given year. <laughs> um, Will, as usual, because he's a little bit dramatic, believed that a hippo probably gores someone to death regularly. I mean, if you think about the whole world, this has to be something that happens regularly. I was of the opinion, however, that hippopotamus-related deaths were not very common. So we picked up the phone, and we called Auburn Info. And the student answered the phone, and I said, I need to know how many hippopotamus-related deaths take place globally each year. And the student on the, other, on the other end of the phone, like they did every time he called, said, if you'll hold on for a few minutes, I'd be glad to find that information for you. Put me on hold, and within 30 seconds, we had our answer. Uh, as I recall, I think I lost that bet, Turns out hippopotamus-related deaths are more prevalent than you or I would expect. But you know what? I haven't called Auburn Info in over a decade. You know why? Because now I own a smartphone. And I can find the same info for myself in a matter of seconds. We live in an instant society, don't we? The way to make money and grow a business in America is to be faster and to deliver results more quickly than your competitors. As someone has said, we have moved from a world where the big eat the small to a world where the fast eat the slow. Just ask Amazon, whose business model has totally upended your expectations for shipping. You realize this? It used to be not that long ago that you paid for shipping. And that getting something that you ordered in like a week was really good customer service. Now we are at the point where if it's not on your doorstep in two days for free, you think you're getting a bad deal, right? We live in an instant society. And that affects how we approach discipleship to Jesus. We are impatient about change. We want spiritual maturity to happen overnight. We want character growth to be effortless. We want change to take place without much work. But that's not how following Jesus works. Discipleship to Jesus is like a vine-producing fruit. It's like a tree growing by streams of water. It's like a child growing to adulthood. Discipleship is a process of slow, steady growth over time. In the words of Eugene Peterson, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Here in John 15, Jesus gives us one of his most famous teachings about discipleship. And the emphasis of the text is clear, isn't it? The metaphor is very plain. 
Vines and branches are mentioned nine times. Fruit is mentioned eight times. And the word abide appears 11 times. The point is quite obvious. Jesus wants his disciples to bear fruit. Jesus wants his people to be fruitful. So here's what I want us to consider this morning in John 15. The necessity of bearing fruit, the joy of bearing fruit, and the secret to bearing fruit. That's where we're headed this morning. Let's think, first of all, about the necessity of bearing fruit. What Jesus teaches his disciples in this dialogue is that bearing fruit is not optional. It's expected. Look at verse 2. 8 and 16 with me. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse 8, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Jesus expects his disciples to be fruitful. Now notice that we learn in verse 2, that there are branches that do not bear fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. What is this talking about? What does it mean to be a branch in Jesus that does not bear fruit? Well, there are two groups of people in the scriptures who identify themselves with Jesus. The ancient theologians referred to these groups, as the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is everyone you see, everyone who visibly associates with the church. And I probably don't have to tell you that not everyone who shows up at a church is part of the people of God, the church. I mean, we see in this very dialogue in the Gospel of John, even Jesus had Judas among his disciples. There are people who hang around and who are a part of things and who are visibly connected to a community and yet who do not have the life of God dwelling within them. The church is always a mixed community. To say it another way, not everyone who professes faith possesses faith. And that has always been the case among the people of God. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again. There is an inner transformation, a new birth, that must take place for you to belong to Christ. And the most important question every one of us can ask is, has that happened in me? Am I merely a part of the visible church, or have I been born again? Am I merely socially connected to the church, or am I spiritually united to Jesus? Jesus is saying there will be some who associate with him but do not bear fruit, and that shows that they are not, in fact, his disciples. Notice how John the Baptist uses this exact same metaphor in the Gospel of Luke. John the Baptist says to his audience, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children For Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's speaking to the Jewish people. He's using the same image Jesus is using. 
And he's saying to them, hey, the fact that you're descended from Abraham, the fact that you're visibly a part of God's people doesn't necessarily mean anything. What God is after is good fruit. So we see in John 15 the necessity of fruitfulness. But before we move on, let's ask this question. What is the fruit that Jesus wants us to bear? As we trace this theme through the rest of the Bible, we find at least two answers. Number one, this is speaking of the fruit of transformed character. You may be familiar with this famous verse in Galatians 5. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Likewise, in Philippians chapter 1, we read this. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So the first kind of fruit we know the Bible is talking about, the first kind of fruit we know that God wants to see in our lives is the fruit of a transformed character, the fruit of virtue, the fruit of new godly behaviors and desires that flow out of us as a result of God's grace in our lives. The second theme we see in the Bible, in addition to the fruit of changed character, is the fruit of spiritual multiplication of more people belonging to Jesus, of the growth of God's kingdom. Uh, Look at Exodus 1, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. We're seeing here just the natural process of people, generations growing throughout history. But then in, in the prophet Isaiah... Notice the promise that's connected to this. Isaiah says, In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. He's using the same idea to say what's going to happen in days to come is that the people of God are going to grow and multiply and fill the world with fruit. So what kind of fruit... Does Christ want his disciples to bear? Well, the fruit of godly virtue and the fruit of spiritual multiplication. One of the most fascinating books I've read in the past decade is a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. The subtitle is The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. The author is Alan Kreider, who is a Harvard-educated historian, and he's writing to try to answer the question, how do we explain the explosive growth of Christianity in the first three centuries after Jesus? How does a religion that is persecuted, marginalized, and openly oppressed by the Roman Empire grow from 120 people at Pentecost to 5 million people by 300 A.D.? I know what you're thinking is the answer to that question. I bet it was the awesome Sunday services. (laughs) They must have had a great worship team. I bet the preaching was good and the children's ministry was good. On the contrary, listen to what their Sunday services were like. Here's what Kreider writes. In the aftermath of the persecution of Nero in AD 68, churches around the empire closed their doors to outsiders due to fear of people who might disrupt their gatherings or spy on them. 
By the third century, some churches assigned deacons to stand at the doors, monitoring people as they arrived. To the service of the Eucharist, they admitted neither pagans nor catechumens, those are people who haven't been baptized yet, but only baptized members of the community and believers from other churches with letters of recommendation. Ryan Meyer, that's your new job, okay? <laughs> Just be at the door and be like, hey, can I see your letter of recommendation before we let you in? Like, that's a little different kind of a church gathering, right? So why did the church grow? If they're not letting anyone into their services unless you've been baptized or you've got a letter that says, I moved here from Ephesus to Philippi, and so I was a part of that church so I could come to your church, how does a church grow? Here's an answer from the second century, from a letter. Christians are no different from any other people in terms of their country, language, or customs. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose them once they are born. They share their meals, but not their sexual partners. They are obedient to the laws that have been made, and by their own lives, they supersede the laws. What made Christianity grow against all odds in the first three centuries after Jesus was the fruitfulness of the early Christians. The way their lives displayed something distinct and different and unique. They were part of the same society as everyone else. They lived lives similar to everyone else, and yet the fruit produced in their lives in terms of integrity and morality and godliness and holiness was distinct. These early Christians understood what Jesus is telling us. They understood the necessity of fruitfulness, that this is what shows the world that we are disciples of Jesus and that Jesus makes people different. Notice, second in this text, not just the necessity of fruitfulness, but the joy of fruitfulness. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, Jesus says, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I think when we talk about um, fruit-bearing, obedience, virtue, transformation, these things sometimes can feel heavy and weighty, like shoulds. But listen, Jesus says right here, he's after your joy. What Jesus wants for you is to live a life full of joy, and the text points to two ways that a fruitful life brings joy. First, a fruitful life brings joy because it glorifies God. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. What glorifies God? His people bearing fruit. And listen, when God is most glorified in your life, you are also most satisfied. We just said in our profession of faith this morning, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's a phrase from the Westminster Catechism written in 1649, capturing what is the purpose of human beings? What are we made for? To glorify God and to enjoy him. And these are not two things. They are actually one thing. You glorify God by enjoying him. And when you enjoy him, it brings him glory. 
And Jesus says, when you bear fruit, when your life is fruitful, when it displays the character of, of virtue and transformation, and when the kingdom of God grows through your influence, when you live a fruitful life, the Father is glorified, and that brings joy to the heart of every person who loves the Father and wants him to be glorified. So a fruitful life brings us joy because it glorifies God. And second, a fruitful life brings us joy because it proves that we are disciples of Jesus. Notice verse 8 again. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The bearing of fruit proves you to be my disciples. Listen, one thing every disciple of Jesus struggles with is doubt. There are going to be days in your life when you feel really confident that you belong to Jesus. And there are going to be other days in your life when you doubt whether you are even a Christian at all. If I were a disciple of Jesus, why would I act like I just did? Why would I say that? Why would I think that? And on top of your own doubts, you'll hear the voice of the accuser saying, you're probably not even a real Christian. Do you know what silences those doubts or helps to? Fruitfulness. When you can look at your life and see the slow, steady growth of the transforming grace of God, when you can see that God really is at work, it helps you have confidence that you really are a disciple of Jesus. When you see God using you in the lives of others, it helps you have confidence that you are a disciple of Jesus. Now, make sure you're using a long enough time horizon to measure, right? Are you more patient this week than you were last week? Probably not. But if you compare the you of today to the you of three years ago or five years ago, I bet you might find reason to be encouraged. I bet you might find reason to celebrate the work of the Spirit of God in you, transforming you. A Catholic priest once said to a friend of mine, you Protestants think in terms of months and years. We think in terms of decades and centuries. I think there's a good rebuke in that statement. The test of fruitfulness is not weeks or months, it's decades. A fruitful life brings us joy because it glorifies God and because it proves, shows that we are disciples of Jesus. Jesus wants you to have joy and he wants you to clue into the fact that one of the most joyful things that can happen in your life is you bearing fruit that gives you joy in glorifying God and that gives you the joy of knowing that you are a disciple of Jesus. So we've looked at the necessity of bearing fruit. We've looked at the joy of bearing fruit. Let's now consider the secret to bearing fruit. This is the real heart of the passage. This is where we get to the real heart of things, the secret of bearing fruit. Now, before we get here, let me ask you a question, Coromdale. Where does Jesus get his metaphors from? It's a real question you can answer. You guys are like, um, hang on, I don't know the answer to this. He gets his metaphors from the Old Testament. 
Okay? If you're wondering, where does Jesus get an image? Where did he come up with this idea? Where did this, this thought come from? Chances are Old Testament. So let's leave John 15 for a moment, and let's trace this vine imagery through the Bible so that we can see that Jesus is not here coming up with an illustration out of thin air. It's not like he needed a story for his sermon, and he's like, oh, what story can I tell? There's a reason he's using this image. Look, first of all, at Psalm 80, verses 8 through 11. The psalmist says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. So who is the vine? The vine is the people of Israel that God brought out of Egypt and planted them in the promised land. That's what this metaphor is speaking of. And in the classic way of Hebrew poetic literature, it's using this vine imagery to speak of God's redeeming work to his people. So the vine is God's people. Later on in the Old Testament, we come, in the Old Testament, we come to Isaiah chapter 5 where the prophet says this, let me sing for my beloved a song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So Isaiah is again telling us who is the vine. It's the house of Israel, the people of Israel. And what's the problem that God has? The problem is they are not bearing fruit. I looked for justice, God says, but behold, bloodshed. I wanted one fruit, and instead I got the opposite. Likewise, the prophet Ezekiel, a few books later in the Old Testament, writes this. Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard planted by the water, fruitful and full of branches by reason of abundant water. Its strong stems became rulers' scepters. It towered aloft among the thick boughs and was seen in its height with the mass of its branches. But the vine was plucked up in fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit. They were stripped off and withered. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. Now it is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land, and fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots and has consumed its fruit, so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter, for ruling. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that God's vine is Israel. And he brought her out of Egypt and planted her on a fertile hill and expected good fruit, but instead, 
She bore bad fruit. So in judgment, he plucked up his vine and let it languish in the wilderness. This is a reference to exile, to God casting his people out of the land. With that background, hear again the words of Jesus in John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. Jesus is drawing on all of this Old Testament revelation. He's saying, I am the true Israel. I am the faithful remnant of one who has come to obey God where God's people have disobeyed. You see, in Jesus, God is replanting his vine. He's recultivating his garden. And this time, the vine will bear fruit. I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. In my backyard, I've got a Canada red cherry tree. Don't really know much about them. I like it. It's a good tree. Last year, I noticed some black growth on some of the branches. Uh, Turns out my cherry tree has a fungus called black knot. So I called my arborist, Mark. And a few weeks ago, he came out and pruned that tree. Cut off a ton of branches. Hauled them all to his truck and chopped them up into pieces. You know what's crazy? That doesn't harm the tree at all. Because those branches do not have life in themselves. They are not independent. When you cut them off from the trunk, they die. The only reason those branches flourish is because they are connected to the tree. And that's the point of Jesus' metaphor. You are not the vine. You are a branch. You are intended to bear fruit. But you only bear fruit because you're connected to the vine. So in your life, fruitfulness, character growth, spiritual multiplication, flourishing, these things come by virtue of your connection to the Lord Jesus. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says in verse 5. And if you interrogate that phrase... What does Jesus mean? Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do a lot of things apart from Jesus, can't you? You can live your whole life apart from Jesus. What he's saying is you can do nothing significant, nothing of eternal value, nothing that produces the kind of fruit I'm talking about. So Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. And here's the secret to bearing fruit. One word, you see it repeated over and over again in this text, abide. Right? Starting in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. You see, over and over again, Jesus says, here's the secret. Abiding. Remaining. Staying. Dwelling. In me. Okay, cool. So, what does that mean? What does that actually look like? Part of, I think, why Jesus gives us this command, abide in me, 
is because it's just one of those things that can put hooks in your mind. And this is one of those passages that just can dwell there and work on you over time. So I don't necessarily want to give a simple answer to what this means because I think it, it speaks to the fullness of what it means to fellowship with Christ. But here's a great quote from Leslie Newbegin that I think captures what Jesus means when he talks about abiding. Newbegin writes this, to abide in Jesus means a continually renewed action of the will. It is the continually renewed decision that what has been done once for all by the action of Jesus shall be the basis, the starting point, the context of all my thinking and deciding and doing. Here's what I like about what Newbegin is capturing in that quote. Notice he says, what has been done once for all by the action of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is Jesus has done what you cannot do. His work is finished, and that's your hope, and that's the source of all of your communion with him. What Jesus has done. And yet, that needs to consistently and continually be for me the basis, the starting point of all of my thinking and deciding and doing. So what Newbegin is capturing is both the once-for-all nature of what Jesus has done and the reality that every morning you wake up and you have a decision to make. Am I going to base my life today on what Jesus has done or am I going to live by something else? Am I going to chase after something else? Am I going to base my life on something else? And Newbegin says, man, every morning when you wake up, that's a renewed decision of the will. What abiding, what remaining is, is waking up every day and going, yep, I'm still grounding my life today in the work that Jesus has done. It's not getting up and saying, I'm going to save myself today by my work. It's not getting up and saying, I'm going to make God happy today by what I do. But it is getting up and saying, the basis of what Christ has done is going to be the basis of my existence. I'm living today out of who Jesus is and what he's done. The secret to bearing fruit is just to keep trusting in Jesus, to continually renew your submission to him and your trust in him, to make his life and death the basis of all your thinking and doing and acting. And notice, Jesus says, his words abiding in us are key to that. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Whoever abides in me and I in him. So notice that Jesus is capturing two things we've already seen in the Gospel of John. One, that by his Holy Spirit, he dwells in his people. So there's a mutual dwelling in spoken of here. And two, that his words are spirit and life. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life, Jesus says in John 6. If Christ's words don't abide in us, we will not abide in him. What it means to abide in him is to live by virtue of what he has said about himself, what he has revealed to us. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So I want to make two appeals to you as we close. Number one, 
Come to Jesus. Be united with him. Be grafted into him. If you've not yet come to him in faith and hope and trust, do so. You can express that through a simple act of humility and trust. Bowing before the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart, acknowledging the bad fruit of your sin and selfishness, and asking him to take you as his own. Come to Jesus if you have not yet. Notice how rich this organic metaphor is. This is not make a decision, pray a prayer, do a thing. This is come and find life in the vine. Second, stay in Jesus. Let his words dwell in you. And renew every day your submission to him. Friends, discipleship to Jesus is about the long game. It's about fruitfulness over time. In an instant society, we're fighting for long-term fruitfulness. This isn't about frantic energy. It's about fruitful energy. It's about long-term transformation and change and fruit-bearing. So listen, don't get discouraged if next week doesn't look very different from this week. We're in this for the long haul. What you want is to look different 10 years from now than you do right now. And guess what? Just like your kid growing up or the tree in your backyard growing, it actually does look different tomorrow than it does today. You just can't tell. But you take a picture of that thing a year from now and look back, you can see the growth. The same thing is true in your soul. The same thing is true for Jesus' disciples. The invitation, the calling, the exhortation is to remain, to stay, to dwell in Jesus, our source of life. Let's pray together. Jesus, we give you praise and glory this morning as the true vine, the one who has fulfilled all the hopes of God's people and who is gathering his scattered people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We ask that you give us the grace this morning, this week, and through all our lives to abide and dwell and remain and stay in you. Thank you for the reminder that apart from you, we can do nothing. Give us a vision for lives that bear fruit. Give us the joy of bearing fruit and glorifying you. And help us enjoy the fellowship and presence of your power and your person dwelling in us for our good and for your glory. Amen.